This week on the Northwest Politicast. Republicans are undergoing something of a metamorphosis in the United States. Historically, conservatives have talked of themselves as limited government conservatives. They've said they do not want uh, government power interfering in the free markets. Not so anymore. We'll talk to a prominent local Republican about the changes underway within the party. Plus, a world leader comes to town talking trade and the invasion of Ukraine. Russia's attempt to limit our freedom and finally its attack on another sovereign neighbor made our decision clear. And the shocking truth that America is woefully unprepared for the next pandemic, both medically and politically. Now, reporting from Seattle, Jeff Pojola. What exactly does conservatism mean these days? Well, it's different depending on whom you ask. Certainly meant one thing to Reagan Republicans, something quite different for Trump Republicans. And then, of course, there's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, one of the leading candidates for the 2024 Republican nomination for president, though he is yet to officially declare. Joining me now is Michael Scherer. He is a reporter for the Washington Post. And, well, it looks like DeSantis is sort of reimagining the idea of what conservatism means. I think that's right. He is pushing beyond where Trump pushed the party when he uh, took the presidency in 2016. Now, historically, conservatives have talked of themselves as limited government conservatives. They've said they do not want uh, government power interfering in the free markets. The DeSantis approach has essentially been to say, I am still a limited government conservative. I want low taxes, etc. But there's an emergency going on right now. And that is that what he describes as sort of woke liberal institutions in the private sector, including corporations, uh, education institutions, the media, um, are are foisting their views into the public sphere. And as a result, uh, extraordinary government action is required. And, and that is how he has justified, uh, uh, you know, punishing the Disney Corporation, for instance, for opposing one of his education policies in Florida. It's how he's justified signing a law in Florida that um, bans social media companies from being able to de-platform candidates for office in that state for any reason, no matter what those candidates do. It's the reason he is pushing for changes to the legal standards under which defamation cases can be brought against the media. And it's also the reason he went after cruise ships after the the, uh, height of the COVID outbreak when they tried to institute in their own on their own ships uh, vaccine mandates, uh, hoping to entice more people to come back on cruises. He passed a law in Florida that said even private businesses cannot do that. Uh, it would be against the law. I mean, this is very much against that old Reagan idea of the government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. It is. And it contrasts pretty sharply with positions DeSantis took just a few years ago. I mean, when there was a debate over net neutrality, Back in 2017, he was very clear that he did not want the government regulating the Internet. He said, if you allow one politician to impose his ideas on the private sector, then you you don't know what's going to happen when the next person gets elected. Uh, He was very critical of Barack Obama uh, for mandating as a part of Obamacare that um, private hospitals, including Catholic institutions, provide abortion services. Um, saying that was just overreach of the government. It shouldn't be something the government should be involved in. And and he's faced some pushback from other potential 2024 candidates. Now, he's not declared for president, but sure looks like he's running. Uh, the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, 
has been very critical of some of these uh, DeSantis moves. Former Vice President Mike Pence is also sort of edging towards an announcement has also said he disagrees with what DeSantis did with Disney. Has DeSantis garnered support for these moves? Because he's certainly casting himself as, you write in the Washington Post, sort of a wartime leader, uh, certainly a cultural crusader. Yeah, that's right. And I think there is broad support. I mean, I think he is he is as much the symptom as the cause of the shift. Um, there has been, and I think Trump had a huge amount to do with it, uh, with his election in 2016, a real change in how conservatives think about even their most essential principles. You know, Trump brought in the idea that free trade wasn't such a great idea all the time anymore and that we should push for tariffs. He basically won that fight within the Republican Party. Trump also pushed to punish companies he disagreed with, even for sort of personal reasons. He went after Amazon, for instance, which is owned by the same person who owns my publication, The Washington Post. So so I think there has been a, a sort of groundswell among rank and file Republican voters who consider themselves conservatives, who agree with this premise, which is that uh, we can no longer have this libertarian strain in the face of what they see as sort of cultural threats um, to their way of life. Uh, creeping into their lives through the private sector. Is this all about the culture wars here? Is that sort of the impetus for this? Yeah, I think the war that DeSantis is fighting is very much cast in terms of culture war issues. And, and you know, he talks about, you know, the woke ideology. And, and, and it's a sort of poorly defined phrase. He means lots of different things when you're talking about lots of different institutions. But he identifies it across, you know, corporate America, you know, institutions of higher learning, institutions of the media, um, uh, uh, and, and other institutions. Um, and, and I think he is trying to establish himself as sort of a, a, a brawler and a fighter and someone who can dominate these people. It's a real motivating issue for Republican primary voters right now. I, you know, the one thing that unites everyone who seems to be edging towards a, a presidential race is that they're all claiming they're best able to get these liberal people and put them in their place. Uh, and, and that is the argument that DeSantis is making. And, and if he's using the power of government to further that argument, he's he's willing to do it. Certainly in politics, you need a good enemy in order to gain a lot of support. And, and this seems to be sort of DeSantis's strategy. I think that's right. Yeah. And, and, and again, I think it echoes what former President Trump sort of showed was possible within the Republican coalition. It's interesting that among the sort of old line conservative think tanks, uh, there's some disagreement here. And a lot of the sort of conservative scholars, the people who've upheld the ideological tradition since the 1960s, have split on these issues. And even the institutions have split on these issues. Um, and and I think that that sort of almost academic debate that plays out in journals of opinion and uh, white papers is about to burst onto the the Republican primary debate stage starting in August when a lot of these candidates get gathered together and you're going to see some of these dis- disagreements in prime time. Where do the Republican rank and file stand on this? Or are we not sure yet until we see these debates? Well, I think that the primary is going to be the test of that. Uh, we will find out. I mean, you can certainly say that when these debates were held in slightly different contexts in 2016, uh, uh, Trump didn't have much trouble uh, gaining a plurality of the Republican Party's support. Uh, we don't know uh, how that will play out this cycle. It's fair to say, though, right now that um, you know the two leaders in the public polling, which are in no way determinative this far ahead, are Trump and DeSantis. And both of them are sort of unapologetic in this area of saying, you know, I'm very happy to punish 
private business who disagree with my positions. I'm, I'm very happy to regulate private business if they are doing things I, I, I don't want to do. Um, and that suggests that Republican primary voters, at least, are for the most part along for the ride here. All right, Michael Scherer with The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you for having me. Still to come. It's one thing for a reporter to talk to another reporter about this, but we'll get a Republican's take on changes within the party. When the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Does conservatism mean smaller, less intrusive government? Traditionally, that has been the philosophy, at least since Ronald Reagan. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. But that seems to be changing. And one of the top contenders for the Republican nomination in 2024, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, is beginning to use government as something of a weapon. Joining me now to discuss this is John Carlson, conservative talk show host at our sister station, 570 KVI. And I guess before we get into Ron DeSantis and and what he's doing, what does conservatism mean in the modern sense? Conservatism today, Jeff, rests on the same principles. Free markets over collectivism, uh, freedom over socialism, and local knowledge is the best knowledge when it comes to problem solving and taking care of problems. So government that is closest to the people is bound to be more responsive. We're talking about Ron DeSantis because he's kind of changing the philosophy a little bit. And we spoke with Michael Scherer of the Washington Post, who wrote an article on this. Some of the things DeSantis has done is, is, as we said, kind of weaponize government, use the government of Florida to punish companies or people that he didn't like. For example, he kind of wrestled control uh, of that district away from Disney, that where Disney World is located, because Disney publicly opposed some of his education policies. Well, that's also an example, going all the way back, I think, to 1967, where Disney carved out its own government, mm-hmm. which gives you an idea of just how badly they wanted Disney World to be located <laughs> in Florida. But there is... No reason for Disney to be a government unto itself. Some people would have called that the ultimate example of corporate welfare. And, of course, a consistent conservative would oppose welfare, uh, whether it is you know corporate welfare or it's welfare policies that keep people poor rather than helping them. Wouldn't know, a conservative move, also oppose the government taking private land from a private company? I don't think they took the land. I think it's still Disney's land. It, it seems like government control. The government wanted control over this land, or at least the DeSantis government wanted control over this land as a form of punishment for Disney's other policies. Yeah, I think, first of all, I think you can make a case that this this uh, arrangement Disney had should have expired a long, long time ago. Certainly. Long after Disney World that's, got That's underway. a fair argument, but I don't think I, that's the reason why DeSantis did it. I, I think. Well, I think the collision with DeSantis was definitely a, a, a reason, a factor, why this jumped to the top of the list instead of being uh, lower on the, on the list. But the bottom line is, should Disney play by the same rules as all other local governments? Why not? Well, the other thing, too, that he has done is he signed a bill that fines social media companies a quarter million dollars a day if they de-platform any political candidate for any reason, even if it's a violation of the private company's 
terms of service. How is that not telling a private company what it can and cannot do with its business? You see, there I am going to be on the side of Ron DeSantis's critics. I like Ron DeSantis. I would have voted the other way on that issue. I, I know that, that big tech's power is so awesome, so overarching, that government is trying to, and this is happening with Democrats and Republicans alike, are trying to say, what should the government's relation be to megatech companies that are now the major platform for how people get their information? But I prefer using incentives and promoting competition to punitive measures like this. But these are two examples of kind of the, the broader issue we're talking yeah. about, and that is, what is conservatism today? Because traditionally, it wasn't this much government involvement in business. That's a good point to, to raise about, you know, when we're talking about de facto monopolists, you know, a lot of people have compared the tech companies of today to the robber barons uh, in the 19th century. Do you use the power of government to promote decentralization and more competition or does the government just step away and whatever happens happens theodore roosevelt used the power of government not to take over businesses but to stop their monopoly status but he was a republican of a very different era he was a progressive yeah. republican he was certainly not a reagan republican because in, in in the 80s it was let business go wild well, I don't think business went wild, but I think over time the power of the government grew so much uh, that you had massive bureaucracy, you had government bullying business, too much regulation, the economy was being stifled and in some cases strangled, and I think Reagan said, you know what, it's, it's time to start streamlining and trimming bureaucracy and you know letting businesses go the way they want. The perfect example of that where you and I are concerned is the fairness doctrine, mm -hmm. which in the name of promoting fairness in media broadcasts actually resulted in a, a lot less emphasis on talking about issues, period, because mm -hmm. they said, you know, we're going to get into a controversy or did you give enough time? So just back away and we won't have, you know, political content. We won't talk about issues. W with the fairness doctrine being lifted, there has been, as we all know now, an explosion of political content on the airwave, radio and TV, and of course... This show included. <laughs> and this, this show would be an example of that. During the fairness doctrine days, don't know if a show like this would have been on the air. But is this now, with DeSantis kind of shifting things in a, in a different direction, does this signal a change in the GOP? Is this sort of the new neoconservative is is using government to i don't want to say restrict business but encourage business to to fight these social battles to fight these uh, as DeSantis would say woke issues i think that battling wokeism is a worthy public policy for conservatives because i think wokeism is at is at war uh with almost every fundamental tenet that that not just conservatives, but many other people believe in, uh, whether it's in universities, whether it's in K through 12 schools. DeSantis has been, you know, in, on the forefront of, of that battle as well with the diversity, inclusion, equity movement. So I understand taking on the movement. I think that businesses, since they are not government, 
uh, are subject more to public criticism than they should be public regulation. So why not allow, say, these tech companies, and I know you disagreed with DeSantis on this or Disney or any of these other issues where DeSantis has effectively, as we said, weaponized the government to kind of push his anti-wokeism philosophy. Why not let the market dictate that? If the market wants a woke company, allow that to happen. Well, this is a fascinating place we find ourselves because people who didn't like conservative criticism of Twitter and Facebook when Twitter and Facebook were putting slapping warning labels or deplatforming people during controversies over COVID and, and other issues, the Hunter Biden laptop, uh, et cetera, said, well, you can just start your own company. And sure enough, conservatives did. It was called Parler. It lasted for about two weeks. In that time, it became the fastest growing social media company in the country. And within another two weeks, it was dismantled because Amazon, Twitter, and what is now Meta, uh, used their clout to make it impossible for them to continue offering their services. That's when I began to say, hmm, the usual conservative remedy of let's just have more competition doesn't appear to be working here if they're not allowing a company like Parler to compete. But, I mean, that goes back to I don't know how many industries have had this issue of consolidation and monopolies, duopolies forcing out competition. That's not strictly a liberal issue here. I mean, conservative right. companies and other industries have done the same thing. Yeah, and I not only that, Jeff, I think that there's a natural predilection for companies to grow and end up doing things like consolidating that might threaten the public interest by undermining competition, just as government, left to its own devices, would continue growing and growing and expanding its reach and its authority. That's where you need, again, conservatives to put a break on government. And I think that there should also be a break on the consolidation of corporate power. And how do you do that? Through government? Well, that's what the Sherman Antitrust Act is all about. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, there has to be someone who says, look, the goal is not to pick winners and losers. The goal is to have rules that everyone lives by that will provide for a competitive marketplace. And the police officer for those rules is, of course, the only power that exceeds corporate power. That's government. So as we kind of wrap up here, we're heading into 2024. DeSantis hasn't announced his candidacy all by all intents and purposes. He's running for president. Does this signal a fundamental shift in, in the Republican electorate, the Republican primary electorate? Are we expecting that in the next year? No, I, I don't think you're going to see the parties trade places. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think uh, the parties are, are going to become the, the party of big government. But there is going to be a willingness to use government power to push back on wokeism and on the consolidation of power among big tech, I think. All right, John Carlson, thank you so much yes. for your time and insight. You bet, Jeff. Coming up next. A world leader paid a visit to Washington State this past week. What he had to say and reaction from the state legislature. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. 
Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This past week, we had a dignitary in town. In Olympia, the president of Finland was visiting with the governor and the state legislature. Joining me now on the Northwest Newsline is the resident Finn in the Washington State Senate, and that is Senator Marco Lias. And, uh, well, we had the president of Finland in town, and uh, he spoke to the legislature. What do you have to say? Well, he was covering a couple things. I mean, I think most importantly, the situation in Ukraine and uh, demonstrating our shared resolve to support the Ukrainian people in their struggle against the, you know, the awful uh, Russian attack that they're experiencing. He also talked a lot about our opportunities to work together, both the United States and Finland, but specifically here in Washington on climate change, clean energy, on technology, a whole host of issues where we've got uh, a lot of economic links and hoping to build on those and create jobs and create opportunities on both sides of the Atlantic. And certainly one of the biggest topics right now is that issue of the invasion of Ukraine. Finland and Sweden, another Nordic country, traditionally neutral throughout the Cold War, now applying to join NATO. That's right. You know, I think, um, as he shared, you know, every country tries to maximize their own security. And in this circumstance, you know, in the face of a uh, really unpredictable neighbor that has now demonstrated a kind of brutality that is shocking. Uh, Makes sense for Finland and Sweden to join together with other like-minded democratic societies to maximize their security and make sure they're part of an alliance that'll keep them all safe. How big of a change is that for Finland? It's, you know, the the Finnish uh, population just before the war, only probably about a third of them supported NATO membership. But Seeing the circumstances in Ukraine really turned that around. So it has become, you know, a much more unanimous uh, decision. I think their parliament voted in 94, 95 percent of the parliament supported it. And it's now 75 or 80 percent of the population that supports it. So uh, much more of a consensus, I think, because that the brutality of the invasion and just the reality that the world's changed and it's time to do what they got to do to to stay safe. And it's a bigger concern for Finland than most countries because it has a pretty lengthy border with Russia. It does, yeah, and a long history of, you know, facing Russian attacks. Obviously, in the World War II era, uh, Finland had to defend itself from a Russian attack. And in earlier in history, there's been plenty of uh, border conflicts and invasions and all that. So uh, the memories run deep in Finland, as the president said. Their collective memory uh, remembers this Russian threat for a long time. The Finnish president was here on Monday. It was the part of a five-day tour of the United States, stopping in places like California, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. But it wasn't just the invasion of Ukraine and Finland and Sweden's efforts to join NATO. He was also talking about global trade partnerships. And Washington does a lot of trade with Finland and some of the other Scandinavian countries. Well, that's right. You know, Microsoft purchased uh, the mobile division of Nokia. So there's been that really firm link there. But also, uh, as... Uh, we met with the governor, the the new CEO of Nokia now, which is focused on 5G hardware, shared with us that T-Mobile is one of their largest customers. So that uh, wireless connectivity is a huge issue that Finland's leading on, as well as artificial intelligence, quantum computing, kind of the, the future of technology. We see a lot of that research and a lot of those innovations coming from Finland and obviously uh, Microsoft, Amazon, our IT sector here in Washington, really interested in that. So the president met with leaders at both of those companies, I think, uh, and brought a, a group of CEOs with him to really talk about what are ways that we can deepen these partnerships, learn from one another, and then collaborate on, um, you know, as like-minded societies, how do we 
harness this technology to do what it needs to do, but also conform to our values of privacy and respect for individual rights. You and I are both of Finnish ancestry. You serve in the Senate. Obviously, I'm in the media. What does it mean for you personally to have the president of Finland come to town? Well, I will say, you know, my parents are both immigrants directly, and they had a chance to be here at the Capitol to see the address and to meet the president and to watch that kind of full circle uh, from their journey to come to this country to to create a better life, to start our family, and then to get to meet with sort of this highest representative of the place they came from was just really poetic for me. Um, but as a as a proud Finn here in Seattle, it's the first time the president has ever visited uh, our region, and it's the first time we've ever had a foreign leader address the legislature. So um, as someone that appreciates all that Finland's doing, I think that they're a great example of one of our partners that highlights our shared commitment to democracy, to uh, societies that are happy and productive and innovative. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of things we can learn from one another. And to have that um, bomb cemented even more has just been really special. Whether it's Finland, Sweden, or, or Norway, there's a lot of Scandinavian heritage here in the Northwest, isn't there? There is. And I think, you know, the governor mentioned that in, in the meeting we had, that I think the kind of practical can-do spirit that we see in the Nordics of you know, let's just figure out the solution and solve the problem. I think we see a lot of that in our political culture here in Washington of pretty practical folks who want to find the solution. And whether it's on the left or on the right or in the middle, you know, people really trying to work together in our legislature, you know, 95% of the bills passed with some kind of bipartisan support. So I think that sort of practical spirit still uh, imbues our politics here. And I think we owe a lot of that heritage to, you know, the folks uh, who came and brought those values with them. And finally, as a fan in the Washington State Senate, are you going to push for legislation mandating saunas? <laughs> you know, I haven't gotten that far. I think first we're going to try and bring some of that quantum technology and that AI. <laughs> uh, then we'll move to saunas after that. All right, Senator Marco Lies, thank you so much for your time and insight. So good to be with you. Still to come. Some of the biggest bills sponsored by both Republicans and Democrats have died a quick death in Olympia. When the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelin, and the legislative session continues down in Olympia, but the deadlines are coming fast and furious, and that means a lot of bills are dying in committee or dying on the floor of the House and Senate, and some of them are pretty significant bills. Joining me now is Paul Query. He is a former reporter for the Associated Press down in Olympia and the current editor of the Washington Observer, which you can read at washingtonobserver.substack.com. And the first thing that kind of sticks out at me is these bills that would have imposed rent control died a quick death. Yeah, um, this is a housing policy is a big focus this year. Um, There's a big push to increase the amount of the supply of housing and low income housing advocates really wanted there to be some rent restrictions as part of that debate. Um, but there's a lot of opposition to that among landlords, property developers, realtors, folks in the in the sort of market rate housing world. And so one of the biggest casualties of the House of Origin deadline, which was Wednesday, was House Bill 1389, which would have capped annual rent hikes. Republicans generally opposed that bill and were inclined to force a lengthy floor fight over it. 
um, which would have caused Democrats problems in other areas as the deadline approached. But the fact that the bill was still hanging around that close to the deadline means that support for it was probably pretty soft, even within the Democratic caucus. Let's kind of go through that procedure, because you, you can't filibuster in the state Senate or for the, in the state House, for that matter. But because the way the state legislature works on a part time basis, you have these deadlines in order to get bills out of committee or, as you say, off the floor of the House of Origin. Otherwise, they're just done. And the Republican strategy to block these rent control bills was we're just going to offer amendment after amendment after amendment, and then everything would have to be debated. And it would, like, as you say, would stall things out and other priorities for Democrats would die as well. Yeah, they have a saying down in Olympia, the majority decides what happens, but the minority decides how how long it takes. (laughs) And the right to debate um, is pretty well enshrined in the procedure down there. And so... The minority could offer as many amendments as they felt felt like offering, and each member is entitled to speak on each amendment, and that can take all night. If you multiply that times the number of bills that they want to get passed, you need to negotiate some kind of compromise, or you have to just let some stuff go at the deadline. And that's ultimately what happened here. And so effectively for renters, things aren't going to change much in the state of Washington this legislative session. But another big bill that died was this huge push for recycling. What happened there? So that was called um, that was called the RAP Act. And it was uh, kind of rolled out, you may remember, with kind of a showy news conference at the Seattle Aquarium at the start of the session. It would have basically put the responsibility for recycling all the packaging that comes into Washington state on the producers of that packaging. Uh, right now, you and I pay for the cost of disposal of that via you know whatever you pay for your garbage and recycling services. This is a big, complicated bill. And so it's not super surprising that it died because it frequently takes more than a year for a complicated idea like that to get through. But one of the elements of that debate was the really um, strong opposition of the garbage haulers who currently own the business of, you know, taking away all the stuff that you throw in the blue bin. They were strongly opposed to this and they were able to kind of sow some discord amongst the um, House Democrats over a provision of the bill that would have installed an Oregon style bottle deposit program. So down in Oregon, if you, you know, when you buy a case of beer, you pay 10 cents a bottle in deposit, and then you can turn the bottles back in and get your deposit back. That's popular down in Oregon, uh, where they've been doing it for 50 years or so. But Washington's been kind of politely ignoring that system ever since. And I, I think that they were able to, opponents of that bill were able to exploit that. So rent control and a bill that would impose that Oregon-style sort of deposit on recycling both failed. What are some of the other bills that didn't make it past the deadline? The other one that really jumped out at me was a proposal to lower the legal blood alcohol count from 0.08 to 0.05. That was a proposal from Senator John Lovick, who represents um, part of Snohomish County. He used to be Snohomish County Sheriff, and he, he was in the state patrol for a long time. And he was responding to a pretty substantial increase in impaired driving in recent years. Um, but as you might imagine, that bill had pretty strong uh, opposition from folks in the business of selling you a drink because you get to 
0.05. If you're a person of small stature, you get a, get to 0.05 sort of on the first cocktail. And we heard from the Washington Hospitality Association, which is the restaurants, that that would have really put servers in a bind because at that level, it's kind of hard to tell whether somebody's you know catching a buzz or just having a good time. So with any of these three major bills that we were talking about, are they expected to come back next legislative session? The folks who advocate for rent restrictions, I would expect them to be back. Um, you know, that bill got a little further than it has in the past. Um, and I think the same thing is true of the recycling bill and leaders in the legislature were talking about the DUI bill as something um, that might come back around too. It frequently takes more than one year for a kind of controversial idea to, you know, to pick up enough support to actually pass down there. And so what's the next legislative deadline where we see other bills that may not make it this time around? Now, House bills are in committees in the Senate and vice versa. And there's another set of deadlines by which those bills have to clear committees um, in the Senate. Um, and then there are um, deadlines toward the end of the session when stuff um, when stuff has to pass. So, you know, it's going to we've only got about a month left in the session, I think. So, you know, things are going to be flying around pretty fast. Committees are meeting as we speak. All right. Paul Query, editor of The Washington Observer and former Associated Press reporter. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be with you. Coming up next. Is America ready for the next pandemic? Well, the short answer is no. But the long answer is also no. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally this week, America shut down in response to COVID. Would we ever do it again? Well, the decision to shut down much of the country early in the pandemic remains highly contested, sparking concern about how we'll respond to the next viral threat. Joel Achenbach has taken a closer look for the Washington Post, and he spoke with Northwest News Radio's Bill O'Neill. You know, citing a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco, you write opposition to public health measures will begin day one of the next pandemic as those critical government intervention takes place. Well, that's right. I mean, there is now a lot of people who say it was a big mistake to shut down the way we did. It was a mistake for the public health authorities to impose mask mandates or to... Uh, you know, push people to get vaccinated. But the public health community, you know, the experts say we saved a lot of lives by doing these interventions, these non-pharmaceutical interventions. And, you know, this debate is going to go on for a long time. But but I do think that the forces that oppose government interventions, they, they have a playbook now that they did not have three years ago. And so if there was another pandemic from day one, uh, there, there'd be a huge pushback against any kind of efforts to shut things down. We were warned years before the pandemic that something like that could happen, but it still took a lot of people by surprise. Was maybe the messaging not right going into this COVID-19 pandemic? Well, we just hadn't been through something quite like this. There were lots of plans for how to deal with the pandemic. I think that, that all of us, you know, I was covering it day in, day out. I, I was caught by surprise by how how this virus was able to really disrupt normal life, uh, not just be, you know because of the government saying so, because it was killing people at, at a really high rate. I mean, particularly the elderly, they didn't know how to treat it right away. They didn't have the, the protocol for saving lives. And so the fatality rate was going through the roof, particularly for older folks or, or people who had underlying conditions. So it was a devastating health crisis. 
That said, any opposition to the next pandemic, whenever it comes, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, is that going to mean a, a grimmer picture and more deaths as a result? There's always a tension, uh, you know, with when you have a situation like this virus, which for most people it caused mild disease, but it killed over a million uh, people in America, or uh, you know, maybe more than 1.1 million. Um, but a lot of people did not like, you know, the the protracted school closings. No one liked that, and uh, people, a lot of people, did not like the, the mask mandates. It caused a lot of suffering to have these interventions. So there's there's a tension between, you know, the desire to save lives and the desire to allow people to live their normal lives and have the economy that's that's functioning. The opponents are have a playbook now in in terms of dealing with this should it come around again. What about the healthcare community? Do they have a playbook as well? The healthcare community learned a lot. There's no question, but every virus is different. I mean, I think the one thing that they they learned is how important it is to communicate with the public and get on top of misinformation and make sure they have a consistent messaging from trusted authorities. We we live in such a divided country, so much polarization, so much um, um, misinformation and disinformation that it, you know, it may be hopeless at the moment to imagine that everyone would come together and in, in a united way say, this is how we're going to deal with this crisis. But our story does point out that in March of 2020, there was a lot of unity for a while about what to do, that the decision to shut down the country for 45 days came not just from the public health experts, it came from the Trump White House, it came from the president himself. So during the, the fearful moment of that first wave, there was a lot of unity that we got to do something to keep this virus from totally, you know, wiping out a huge number of people. That's the Washington Post's Joel Achenbach speaking with Northwest News Radio's Bill O'Neill. And that'll do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, Puget Sound Now with Bill Schwartz, and Deeper Dive with Kim Shepard. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.